0: When we come to the question of doubt, it comes in a bunch of different ways. And so let's look at the scripture together. We're in Luke chapter 24. As we see how Jesus deals with this, we're going to start in verse 36. If you're using a church Bible, you're on page 885. And here's what we read. As they were talking about these things... And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything more to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this word, would you teach us? Would you enlighten our minds? Would you free us from our false understandings and ideas? Instead, would you touch us with the gospel? We know that could happen through the power of the Holy Spirit, so we ask that it would. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, do you ever wonder if it's all true? I mean, at least if you're here as a Christian this morning, we believe that this entire world comes from an invisible God that we cannot see or touch, who brought the entire thing into existence from nothing merely by speaking it. And then that who knows how many years into the whole experiment, at least thousands, quite possibly many more, he actually became incarnate and became physical as a man, and in the person of Jesus Christ remains fully God, but somehow is also fully a person, and then died on a cross, and then rose from the dead, And then, after hanging around for 40 days and teaching, ascended up into heaven, and we haven't seen him for 2,000 years, but we trust that someday he's going to come back. And we have put our entire hope and faith and life and death in that truth. Now, that's either the greatest news the world has ever heard, or it is flat-out craziness. And there's really nowhere between the two. you know, you may be one of those folks who says, you know, I have never doubted God. I got to tell you, I'm not. There are just too many people I know who are incredibly smart atheists or agnostics. And there are too many people I know who are incredibly smart followers of other religions. There are times where you wonder, have I sort of thrown my life away following a good story, but something that's only a story, not really true? Now, have you doubted? Now, the, the crazy thing about many churches, and, and it's not just churches, it's become our world in general, is if you express doubt, people freak out on you. You know, Many social and political commentators have noted that we've become more and more what people call tribalist, that if you don't agree with your group and everything, then you're cast out immediately. So if you express any doubt you're discredited, you're considered one of the others, and you're cut off. So you can't doubt your political positions, not a one of them. You can't doubt the people that you're with, not a one of them. You can't doubt what your own past decisions have been made, because there's just almost no room for doubt anymore. If you express it, you might be outcast and ostracized and gone. And so we shut up about it. And sadly, the church has too often followed that tendency instead of opposing it. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who say, look, I grew up in a church, and I had all these doubts, and I tried to express them once or twice, but they just shut me down, and so I just sort of buried them down until I got to college, and then I decided I was just done. Or even, you may be at a church that welcomes the doubts and is ready to talk about them, but people absorb this feeling that we can't doubt, and that if I put my question to this, well, maybe it'll lead to this, and maybe it'll lead to this, and and so they just shy away from ever expressing it. Our world just doesn't deal with doubt very well, and we don't deal with doubt very well. If you look at Luke 24, Jesus takes an entirely different approach to doubt. Jesus says we can bring our doubts to him because he can satisfy them, that we can bring him our doubts because he can satisfy them. And so we're really going to look at three things this morning. First, that Jesus makes room for doubters. Second, that Jesus enters that situation and responds to doubters. And third, that Jesus recommissions doubters. So he makes room for doubters, he responds to doubters, and he recommissions doubters. So we're going to look at those three in order. Real quick, though, we need to start by setting the context. Because if you look at the first verse of our passage, verse 36— Jesus says, well, Jesus says, Luke, the author of the gospel, says, as they were discussing these things. And so you have to say, well, what things? Now, notice we've come to the very end of the book. We're at the end of Luke's gospel. Well, what are they talking about? Flip back to chapter 23. Jesus Christ, who has walked the earth, who has done all these miracles, has been hung on a cross suffering the death of a common criminal. He has been hastily put in a grave because the Jewish Sabbath was about to start. Other Gospels tell us a huge stone rolled across that grave and sealed, and a guard of soldiers posted to make sure the tomb stays secure. But then at the start of chapter 24, two women, another one of the Gospels tells us both named Mary, have gone on the morning of the day after the Sabbath to do a better job of preparing the body for a proper burial. They get there, and the stone's rolled away, the soldiers are gone, and they meet two angels who say, why are you looking for Jesus? Why do you search for the living among the dead? He's not here. In amazement, they run back to tell all the other disciples who don't believe him. Except Peter, and then we know from another gospel, John, go run to the tomb to look for themselves, and come back and say, it's true, it's empty. Then, before our passage, two other people who have followed Jesus are walking about a day's walk to a village called Emmaus, and as they walk, a man walks along beside them, and at first they don't realize who it is, but as they talk, eventually they realize, this is Jesus, resurrected And he shares with them from all the scriptures how it's true. And they go rushing back to Jerusalem and tell the disciples, We have seen Jesus. He has risen. So imagine the setting if you're one of the 11 disciples that are left. Your Lord died on a cross. Now, these two women, Mary and Mary, both came back and say, No, the tomb is empty. Then Peter comes back and then John and they say, It really is empty. We've seen these angels. Then these two men rush back from Emmaus and say, We have seen Jesus himself risen from the dead. And they're thinking, Well, yeah, but I don't believe it. Because you know what? In their world, just like our world, dead people tend to stay dead. And so they're struggling with this and they're doubting because, based on everything they've ever experienced in their life, they should. And look what Jesus does. First thing Jesus does is Jesus makes room for doubters he does it in three ways. A, he arrives. Verse 36, as they were discussing these things, what happened? Jesus himself stood among them. Jesus doesn't take the back door out. He doesn't say, wow, I'm busy and kind of tired. We'll try this another day. He doesn't say, I'll take it after the weekend. He doesn't say, my schedule's really full and I got to do some other stuff. Jesus comes to the doubters. And realize doubt is is not the opposite of belief. The opposite of belief is unbelief. Doubt, by definition, means there's some amount of belief there, or you wouldn't call it doubt. And so Jesus arrives. He comes to those who doubt. That should give us great hope. Then B, look what he does. After he arrives, he engages with those who doubt. What are his first words? Peace be to you. Words of healing and comfort and rehabilitation to a bunch of disciples whose world has gone absolutely haywire and who are struggling to believe. I mean, think how different this could have gone down. Jesus could have rolled in and said, Hey, team, let me rehearse the last week for you, okay? When I was in the garden and I told you I was going to be crucified, and only thing I asked was for you to stay awake and pray with me, you couldn't even stay awake. You were all asleep and drooling out of the side of your mouth while I was going to face the wrath of God. And then after that, when I am up on the cross in agony that the world has never known, I saw Mary and Mary and some of the other women there, but y'all were pieced out except for John. You know what? Even now, you can't believe. It's been a nice run, but I'm pretty sure the core of this team just can't win a championship it's going to be time to break it down and redraft and start over because this one just didn't work. So I'm just here to tell you guys I'm going to try again. I mean, It could have gone down that way, but it didn't. Jesus arrives and he says, peace to you. Words of healing, words of de-escalation, words of comfort to a group of people who were doubted, who were doubting. Jesus arrives and then he engages. And then see, Look at the third thing he does. Jesus understands. He understands their doubt. He does the best thing you can usually do in a conversation. He asks a really good question. Here's his question, and it's our question today. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? He asks why. Because you realize you can do one and the same thing. Two people can take the exact same action for different reasons, and you deal with it entirely differently. Jesus, of course, can know what people think, so he knows what to say next. But you know what? My mind reader is completely broken, and so is yours. And so the first thing you need to do after you arrive, after you engage, is ask, why? You know, I saw a TV commercial that illustrated this beautifully. Um, It must be a failure of a commercial because I have no idea what it was for. But I remember the image. This young woman is walking down a fairly gritty urban street. She's talking on her cell phone, so she's completely distracted, not aware of the situation around her. She walks by a guy sitting in a doorway, dragging on a cigarette, looking pretty scruffy, who's watching her. And just after she goes by, as she's about to step in the crosswalk, he darts for her purse, grabs the strap, jerking her backwards. And you think you know what it is, right? Straight up purse snatch? but then the scene freezes. It zooms out, and you see the car barreling through the crosswalk that was about to kill her, from which he saved her. One and the same action, but why you do it changes everything. So Jesus asks, why do you doubt? So what do you do when your kids start expressing doubt about our faith? What do you do when the people in your community group, when your friends... When somebody at work, even when somebody gets in your face, what do you do when you start doubting yourself? Well, we do these same three things. We arrive, we don't treat doubt as unbelief, doubt is belief with doubt. We engage, we don't step away from the person who doubts, we step in with them. And then, third, we ask this question why do doubts arise in your hearts? And that's true at the level of what Jesus is talking about, the resurrection itself. It's also true at some of the more, you might say, derivative beliefs. You know, why why do we believe this about God in this church? Don't be scared of somebody in your family or your community group or anybody else asking that. Step into it with them. Arrive, engage, and understand. Jesus makes room for doubters, and so should we. Then second, Jesus responds to doubters. Look at what he does. What he does, recognizing that there can be different reasons for doubt, is in this passage, he takes three common reasons people might doubt his resurrection, and he responds to them. So why do people doubt the resurrection? Well, first, or A, I guess we should say, sometimes we doubt things because they just seem too good to be true. Sometimes it's so much easier to protect ourselves from hope than to risk the thought of being excited about something for the thought that it might just get slammed down and disappointed again. And so in self-protection, we often doubt good news. The text says the disciples are doing that. Look at this. While they still, verse 41, did not believe it. Why? Because of joy and amazement. So to something that's too good to be true, Jesus comes and he responds to the doubt. Now, other people doubt for an entirely different reason. They doubt because there's just another explanation that seems to make a lot more sense. You realize the disciples are doing that too. Look back at verse 37. They're startled. They can't believe Jesus just showed up because he's dead. And so they decide they must have seen a what? A spirit, a ghost. Now, it's not like that's the normal explanation in their world. They don't walk around seeing ghosts all over the place. But given what's happening, that's the best bad answer they've got. And so they say, well, I must be seeing a ghost. That's a better explanation than the fact that Jesus, that we saw die, is alive. And to both of these reasons to disbelieve the resurrection, Christ gives the same answer. Look at what he does. He says, come here, touch me, feel me. The word touch doesn't even mean this. It means like grab me and squeeze me. Look at my hands where spikes were shoved through them. Look at my feet where another spike was driven through. Touch my side where a spear was pushed in to confirm that I died. Grab me, squeeze me, hug me. Realize it's really me. This is no spirit. And if that's not enough, then look further in the passage. He says, okay, verse 41, do you have anything to eat? And he takes a piece of fish and consumes it. He eats it and it's gone because it's inside Jesus. To the people who doubt because it seems too good to be true. To the people who doubt because it seems so improbable, Jesus says, touch me, see me. It really is true. So will you let Christ respond to your doubts? Will you let him say, realize it's really true? Now, of course, the way he does that today is different than the way he did it then. For them, he could say, put your hand right here, touch, feel, squeeze, give me a hug. Well, for us, of course, he does it instead through history. Because that was 2,000 years ago. We can't touch him, but he has left the testimony of hundreds of people who did, who saw him, who heard him, who felt him. Some of them wrote it down in these books we call the Gospels. And you believe history in a different way. You know, I believe George Washington crossed the Delaware. I don't believe it because I saw it. I didn't. I don't believe it because I did a repeatable experiment, like in chemistry class. I believe it because it's a credible testimony that all the people who were there said this really happened, and I believe what they have said. That's how you believe history. Will you let Jesus answer your doubts? You know, it's amazing and it's important to say doubt is never bad. But it is possible to embrace your doubt in such a way that you use it as an excuse to avoid deciding. If you look back up at these guys on the way to Emmaus, right before this in our chapter, Jesus is like kind, but also a little rough with them. He says to them in verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. So there comes a point where we can take the true fact that Jesus makes room for doubters and use it to not make room for Jesus. And Jesus says, the testimony is here. You have to decide. Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist, once said, if I ever did stand before God and find out I was wrong, what would I say to him? You didn't give me enough proof. And God sometimes looks back and says, actually, yes, I did. So if you're someone here who has embraced your doubt to the point of not actually being willing to even consider the gospel, you know what you ought to do? Ask the exact same question. Why do I doubt? What's in my heart? Why do I doubt? Because you just might find, if you look honestly in, that you don't doubt for any intellectual reason at all. You doubt because you don't want the gospel to be true because if this is true, it changes everything about our lives. So if you're a non-believer here, if you don't follow Jesus here this morning, it's important to learn to doubt your own doubt. What am I really getting out of this? Have I taken an honest look? Because it might be time to look again. If I were going to found a world religion, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't start it by saying that the founders of the religion all were pretty unsure that it actually had happened. That's not the best way to get the horse out of the gate. And did people back then believe in resurrection? Well, yes and no. It was very common back then to believe that there would be, at the end of time, a general resurrection of everyone. It was not common back then to believe that there would be a specific individual resurrection in history. So we can't just write this off as, well, ancient people were superstitious. In their world like ours, I already said it, dead people tend to stay dead. The text itself shows us that. They don't go, oh, Jesus, we knew you could do it. Here, Right here, verse 85, we knew you were coming back. We're in good shape. They say, this can't be true. This was entirely unexpected, unless it was true. So Jesus responds to doubters. And third reason, see, there's a third reason in here that people doubt. They doubt because they didn't expect it to work out this way. You know, if you read the Bible, if you read what we call the Old Testament, which was their Bible available, they were pretty sure they understood what it said, and they were pretty sure what it said was that when the Messiah came, he would be a military leader who would lead them to freedom and stop the suffering that they dealt with because the Romans ruled their land, make them independent and free and prosperous, and never have problems again. And then Jesus showed up and said things like, my kingdom is not of this world, and I've not come to bring a revolution. And was kind of ambivalent about the whole Roman thing, and then died. And none of their expectations were coming true, and so they doubted. And you see that in verse 44 and 45. He said, You guys didn't actually understand why I was coming. I was coming for something bigger than to free you from the Romans, because the problem you have, in fact, is sin itself which has been there since the very beginning and infects everyone, and it had to end this way with me dying for you. He says the story of the gospel is something bigger than you ever knew. Well, do you doubt because you have an expectation of Jesus that he just hasn't made come true? Because he was supposed to be the one who fixed my mortgage or made my job work right or found me a spouse or got me away from my spouse, or he is supposed to be the one who made my kid well. Or made me well? At some level, do you have a deal with God? Because this is what you expect out of him? Well, the answer is, that's not how God works. We come to him with no deals because it's simply true. And then we trust him to meet us in that. So what does Jesus do? He makes room for doubters. He arrives, he enters in, he understands. And then he responds to doubters. Look what it is here. He therefore opens the entire scripture to them to show them what the scripture really expected. And then quickly, third, he recommissions doubters. He doesn't give up on this bunch. Wouldn't it have been easy? And think of how many times they've fouled this thing up. But instead, he does two things. A, verse 48, he says, you are my witnesses. Now, what's a witness do? I I had jury duty last week. A witness comes in. They testify to what they have seen and what they have heard and what they know. They just report what they know. He says, you are witnesses. So when you doubt, you don't stop talking about Jesus. You just talk about what you know. And that can include the pieces you doubt. That can include the places that you say, I don't know how to deal with this part. We don't pull away, we lean in. And then B, verse 49, he says something that's a little elliptical here. He says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city till you're clothed with power. Well, what's that mean? Well, it only makes meaning when you realize that the gospel of Luke that we are reading here is the first of a two-part series. The author of Luke also wrote the book of Acts, two books later in the Bible, where the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes to be with them in a non-material but incredibly real way. You say, well, if I'm a witness and I still doubt, how do I know what to say? And the answer is the Spirit's with us when we need to know what to say. You pray, and then you just say what you know, and you trust that that's enough. He says, you're recommissioned. Yes, you doubt. And so go be witnesses and trust the Spirit's going to give you what you need. Now, how would that work out? How would that actually happen in practice? Well, here's how it happens, at least one example a young woman who about a year and a half or two years ago became a Christian in our church here. And her husband had come to Christ. And he said, would you go talk to my wife? And I said, sure, well, why don't we all get together? And he said, no, just you. I'm not going to be near that. I thought, okay. And so I called her and she said, I'm not coming in your church building, but I'll meet you somewhere else. So I made sure my wife, Jill, knew. I made sure James, my boss, knew and met her down at a coffee shop down in McLean. And I walk in and she says, I think my husband's gone, mm, mm, insert expletive here, crazy. And I want to talk to you because when I ask him about this, he doesn't know how to answer me. So I got questions for you. Okay. (laughs) So I said, well, how about this? I mean, you just wonder what I'm about to get, right? I said, I'm really hard to offend. So why don't you ask me whatever you want to ask me? And if I know the answer, I'll tell you the answer. If I don't know the answer, I won't tell you the answer, I'll tell you I don't know. And if I know part of the answer, I'll tell you the part I know, and I won't tell you the other part. And she goes, okay. And for three hours she starts firing questions at me. I missed my next meeting, I missed the meeting after that. And it was all over the map. And I knew the answers to some. I didn't know the answers to others. I mean, please don't ever get in this impression you think, well, if you've been to seminary, you know all the answers. The more you study, the more you realize you don't know. So I answered what I could. I didn't answer what I couldn't. Um, By the way, I didn't always give the traditional evangelical answer, because sometimes I'm pretty sure it's the wrong answer. And after three hours, suddenly she goes, okay, that was my last question. Thank you. Shakes my hand and walks out. (laughs) And I went, what was that? Well, three weeks later, I went to meet her and her husband for a follow-up meeting, and this time they came together, and I walk in, get a cup of coffee, sit down, and I say, so, how's the, how's the last week been? She goes, well, I've been a Christian for three weeks. I went, what? <laughs> what? I mean, I was so skeptical. I said, no, no, you realize you're saying that you're a sinner. Yeah, you realize you're saying that God exists. Yeah, you realize you're saying you should be in hell for your sin. Yeah, you realize you're saying Jesus lived and died. Yeah, we through the whole thing. I thought, get me from there to here. And she said, well, you know, I thought about the answers you gave me. She said, I liked some of them. I didn't like others of them. She said, but I kept thinking about them. And as I thought that night, I said, well, that pastor keeps telling me that I've got to decide if Jesus really rose or not. She said, and I finally decided that was really the only plausible answer to this is he really rose from the grave. She said, and everything else kind of fell into place after that. (laughs) I didn't know anybody was coming to Christ that day. I thought I was getting beaten bloody. This is how it works. We witness, we trust the Spirit, and we just say what we know. You don't have to run from your doubts. Jesus comes to you, and he enters into them. He responds to them, and then he recommissions us to go out. And then look at the last verses of this chapter. Look what that leads to. Very end of chapter 24. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So let's do that together. Let's pray. God, our Father, we are excited to bless you in our worship. We pray that you would help us to love and to live and to serve We are excited to testify to what we know. We're also comfortable to admit when we don't know. Help us in our doubts, Father. Help us to understand ourselves why we doubt. Help us to understand others why they doubt. And trust that you'll be with us. And help us even now as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.